if Freddie could see this <laughs> in Oxford, it would be, you know, the time of his life. <laughs> and I explained, he was here for a few months, but he always said it was the best time of his life. <clears throat> and because he didn't feel he was very much supported by Brazilians, as time passed. So, he's very much, Gilberto Freire is very much alive still in Brazil, loved and hated. Uh, although he was born 119 years ago, only 12 years after the abolition of slavery in Brazil, the last country to do so. A member of the Brazilian white elite, he was born into a relatively impoverished upper middle class family that had been part of the rural aristocracy of the state of Pernambuco in the northeast of Brazil, which had once been the most important region of the country. The work which made him famous in Brazil and abroad, and which still supports his fame until now, Casa Grande e Senzala, literally the translation would be the great house and the slave quarters, was published 86 years ago, in 1933 at a time when Brazil had little more than 30 million people. Now it has 210 million. Was it still mainly agricultural and exporter of raw materials. A time also when illiterate people and women without the authorization of the husband had no right to vote. And as a famous critic, Antonio Cândido reminded us a few years ago, that was also a time when anyone who dared to say as his brother did, that uh, there was extreme, po extreme poverty in Brazil, he, he would be ac accused of being a communist and could go to jail. I'm afraid it's getting that bad. <laughs> in the 1930s, many Brazilians and foreigners alike agreed that nothing positive could expect from a country populated by a mongrel race and ruled by a mulatto <laughs> government as the stereotype of Brazil asserted. Freire, however, in his major works, was intervening in the debate about identity in Brazil and confronting a long-established view which had been achieving more and more of a scientific status in the early 20th century. And this view lay behind the deeply ingrained um, low self-esteem of the country. Its basic assumptions were that civilization and purity of race walked hand in hand, while polluting and degenerating contact with the so-called lower races should be avoided at all costs. It's important to remember that Brazil received more African slaves than any other country in the world, and that the region where Freire comes from took more, almost, more, almost all of them arriving in the ports of Salvador and Recife, straight from West Africa. Okay. So Freire's achievement, which was unexpected uh, for a member of the Brazilian elite who shared a pride in their European ancestors and a deep frustration at being Brazilian as well, was put forward, so his achievement was to put forward the idea that miscegenation and, uh, was not a problem and that purity of race was not a condition for civilization. He argued that there was no scientific basis for praising one purity or uh, opposing the other, mixing. And that the main problems of the country, 
this was 1933, were not racial, but social, economic, environmental. Okay? Anthropology and history, which he studied first at, Col at B uh, Baylor University, Texas, and then at Columbia Colum University, uh, had convinced Freddy, it took a while, not, it, was it was not immediately, but convinced Freddy that the population of Brazil needed to be educated, needed to be medically treated, uh, hygiene, etc., health, rather than replaced, or even more, diluted by the arrival of white immigrants from Europe, especially from North Europe. This idea, which was rather uncommon at the time, was what made him an intellectual respected by figures like the French historian Fernand Rodel, the Spanish philosopher Julian Marias, the British politician Stafford Cripps, the British historian of Victorian England, Asa Briggs, just to mention a few names. In Freire's new interpretation of Brazil, miscegenation was associated with in the enrichment and the, the improvement of cultures. The biggest enrichment in Brazil coming from the softening, that's the word he uses, influence of miscegenation uh, on Brazilian society. Racial mixing, mixing, he said, was the oil that lubricated the economic slave system. A system that, his words, like a powerful God, divided us into masters and slaves. And um, a system that was the source, uh, and, the, and this miscegenation was the oil that lubricated and was the source of a relative social harmony that had become part of the Brazilian uh, character. In short, being mixed was not an obstacle to the development of Brazil or an obstacle to the development of a positive Brazilian identity because being mixed was that identity. In the, now going to international relations. In the narrow sense of international relations as an academic discipline, Freire did not contribute as he did to history, sociology, anthropology. Despite his admiration for a pioneer in international relations in Britain, Alfred Zimmer, mm -hmm. uh, whom he heard lecture at Columbia University in November 1921. At that time, Zimmer, who had been a key figure for the foundation of the League of Nations um, in 1920, was involved in his pacifist campaign and in the, in the post-war reconstruction. And he was invited by Colombia to talk about an the ancient Greeks and the lessons that modern world could learn from them. He had this famous book published, in, I think, in 1910 or 12, the, Grey, the Greek Commonwealth. And from that, he you know, came this idea of how much, <laughs> how much better the Greeks were and how much they could teach <laughs> us. Nevertheless, uh, in the broader sense, uh, so uh, there is not in a strict sense a contribution, but in the broader sense of international relations, there are two contributions that Freddy made, uh, which I'd like to talk about now. One was, I could say, involuntary, just by chance, and while the other was not. Okay, the first one, unintended contribution. Freire's first contribution took place during the Second World War, when his ideas about the importance of miscegenation were thought to be an important tool to, challenging, to challenge institutionalized racism in the United States and its repercussion in the world at large. 
In discussing race mixture and its importance for Brazil, the view of the country he put forward was far, far, very far from idyllic though. His main intention was to explain Brazil to the Brazilians by stressing the important role the Africans, and in a small degree also the Indians, but he gave more importance to the Africans in this book, had played and were playing in the Brazilian culture. Okay? But uh, he didn't deny that race mixture in Brazil, which was a fact, involved also sadism and masochism. He didn't deny it. As in a tragic comedy, he offers a narrative of conflict and a lot of suffering, which produced a relatively harmonious result, unintended result, okay, uh, of a fraternal tendency in the society, in the country. Um, but in spite of these qualifications, and there are many, that undermined the rosy view of the country that Freire was afterwards accused of defending, the timing of his work encouraged commentators uh, in abroad, a lot, in Brazil as well, not so many, to ignore the nuances of Freire's interpretation and place his work in the tradition that contrasted uh, the American racial hell and the Brazilian racial paradise. There was already this tradition from the 19th century in the United States. So they put his ideas in that tradition. A cont uh, so in um, this contrast uh, would become even more important to be emphasized by the commentators as the World War, uh, the Second World War approached. The American historian Louise Hunk, for instance, referred in 1939 to Casagrande, his main work, as representing a breath of fresh air in a period dominated by nationalist and racist ideas, deeply related to the, his words, fundamental social and political problems of our times. The book defended a doctrine, as uh, Louis Ranks put, a doctrine loaded with political dynamite. A dynamite that could, if exploded, counteract the fascist and Nazi ideologies which were rapidly gaining adepts all over the world. After all, he wrote, Louis Hunt wrote, Freire presented to the world a country that could make the greatest contribution to humanity at a time when in many other places there prevailed, the, his words, the domination of one race or one culture which considers itself superior. That was the reason why the US Congress used Casagrande to raise awareness of the importance in the 40s, of the importance of Brazilian cooperation in order to reduce the dangerous influence of the Germans in Latin America, which was growing. And even more revealing was the relevance Freire's work was believed to have in showing to the world in general and to the US in particular two important facts. This was in the discussions of the House of Representatives. First, that the black, as they say, had been playing an essential role in the development of American cultures. And second, that they could play an equally essential role in the security of the, all the Americas, now, as they put, threatened by European totalitarian regimes. 
So in short, Frady's work, Frady's works, which were described in the debates of the House of Representatives as monumental works, their words, that should be urgently translated, could help Americans realize that the US could not hope, the words in the Congress, for the destruction of Nazis in the old world while retaining race prejudice in the new. From Freddy's work, the congressmen were told, uh, inverted commas, Americans have much to learn in how diverse races and cultures can live together in harmony and contribute jointly to the development of a new civilization. This was the context for the English translation of Casa Grande, finally published in 1946 with the title <coughs> The Master and the Slaves by the progressive publisher Alfred Knopf. And also, this is the context for the invitation to talk about Brazil several times in the US that Freire received during the war. <clears throat> Once at the Indiana University in 1944, resulting in a book aimed at explaining Brazil, not as the previous books to the Brazilians, but to the foreigners, especially to a, to a foreign audience, especially to the American audience. And the name is Brazil and Interpretation, 1945. And it's interesting also to point out that Freire's The Master and the Slaves was also credited for, uh, for the changing attitude of the American people towards the African Americans. As a famous American historian, Tannenbaum, um, where is it? Uh, put it, Freire had a share and perhaps his words, and perhaps a very important one in the civil rights movement in the United States. Mm -hmm. By influence, his words, influence an entire generation who prepared the background for the civil rights movement from the 1960 onwards. Okay, this is the unintended contribution. The intended contribution. Freddie could be described both as a patriotic Pernambucan and also as a patriotic Brazilian, sometimes being criticized for seeing Brazil as if Brazil was a huge Pernambuco. Nevertheless, despite being a champion of regionalism, uh, who stressed the importance of preserving regional cultures from cuisine, he was mad about the, the sweets of Pernambuco, and he wrote about that, all that and to <laughs> native trees, and traditional architecture. So in spite of all that, Freire was more outward looking than most Brazilian intellectuals of, the, of his day. He was an Anglophile, a Francophile, a Hispanophile, always ready to appropriate foreign ideas and adapt them to the Brazilian context if he thought it would mean improvement. So uh, imitate what is good. <laughs> It was no surprise, therefore, that Julian Huxley, director general of the newly founded UNESCO, should invite Freire to participate in the conference in Paris in 1938 about tensions affecting international understanding. Together, so he was invited together with seven other well-known social scientists from Europe and America. The whole aim of this conference was to see in which way the social sciences could help fight against the kind of nationalisms, their words is aggressive and virulent nationalisms that had been responsible for the disaster of the war 
So it was part of a post-war activity to avoid the repetition of that catastrophe. Among the topics Freire put forward for the discussion in this uh, uh, Paris meeting, and uh, ideas that was soon published, publicized in Brazil, both in print and in lectures he gave at the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and also at the Army Staff College, was the need to revise textbooks of history and geography. And also, very important, the biographies of the national heroes, since they could be, as he put, the source or fuel that feed the hatred among nations, the prejudices among races, the antipathies among peoples. For a better understanding among nations and peoples, he argued, it was essential that national heroes, as he put, were sometimes deformed by nationalistic myths and in the interest of national, particular nations and groups. It's essential that they be presented with their contradictions and from various national points of view. Since, as he would later say, sometimes the hero of one nation is the villain of another. <laughs> Cromwell, oh, some examples he gives. Cromwell, Solano Lopez from Paraguay, Rosas from Argentina, and so many, so many other national figures were waiting for this kind of transnational and interscientific, use this term, biography which would reveal not only their greatness and achievements, which they probably had, but also their faults, weaknesses, incoherence, and so on. That would be the way to make an important contribution to avoiding the tensions that cause wars. And the reason behind his idea is that, as he argued many times in different writings, in different articles, in different books, Real, bi his words, real biography, like real history, always seems to be a study in the contradictions of human nature. When seen, still his words, when seen as contradiction, human nature never becomes easy material for propagandists to use in building up false images of perfect peoples or heroic individuals. So this type of monumental biography, as he put, that exists so much, is particularly common when its subject is a major national figure. In these cases, glorifications tend to be to overcome any other consideration. And the person studied stops being a man and becomes a civic monument, perhaps artistically perfect but full of false notes as a picture of a human being. Well, Freire's proposal at the U 1948 UNESCO conference about detention that caused wars also stressed that the possible liberating influence of the social science depended on their avoiding being used in the service of ethnocentrism and aggressive nationalism and even of being closely connected to a particular nation. So he says, it's time to try to contain the excessive development of the so-called Chilean sociology, Peruvian sociology, French sociology, German sociology. Since these sociologies are easily perverted by national interests and aspirations. And they, so they harm not only science, 
but international understanding as well. Transnational and regional studies in which a political or national criterion is replaced, that's his proposal, by an ecological or cultural criterion helps solve the problem of bringing peoples together and opening up ways of common understanding communication between them. And as an example, uh, and I'm finishing, and as an example of what he had in mind, he suggested the implementation of a transnational scientific study of great regional or, as an example, pan-Latin American problems carried out by the combined efforts of individuals from different disciplines and from different nations. Okay, that's... A recent biography of H.G. Wells describes him as a global thinker on the grounds that his books were translated into many languages and read in many parts of the world. Something similar could be said about Gilberto Freire. Despite the initial handicap of writing in Portuguese, he ended up being translated into Japanese and Hungarian as well as English, French, German, Spanish, Italian. But the case I want to make is that he was a global thinker in a much stronger sense of the term. That is, someone who took a serious interest in African and Asian cultures as well as European and American ones, that is, North and South American. And he drew on all this in his many books. And my part in our duet, then, is to discuss Freire's main contributions to social theory. Well, I have to say right away that he didn't really like the term theory, <laughs> which he associated with being abstract and being schematic. He saw himself as a man of letters rather than a sociologist. He was deliberately impressionistic. For, that. for him, it was a term of praise, not abuse. But he did produce what other people call theories, especially theories of the middle range. He was extremely interested in ideas, very quick to pick up new ones and make them his own. As early as 1936, he described the Brazilian writer as writing in a postmodernist style. In 1971, in a lecture, he talked about postmodern challenges to the modern Brazilian. Again, Freire was interested in ecology in the 1920s. He was lamenting the destruction of Brazilian forests by 1925, and in 1937, he published a pioneering study of environmental history based on his native Northeast. But as Maria Lucia has already told you, Freire is most famous for his ideas about mixing, mestizaging. He viewed the history of Brazil, to which he devoted um, three um, big volumes, as the history of the encounters between three peoples, the indigenous, um, for example, the Tupinamba, the Portuguese colonists, and finally, the African slaves. Never shy of writing about sex, he included in his history 
chapters on sexual encounters and their consequences, miscegenation. But the admirer of Franz Boas, whose uh, photograph hung in his study, at least at the end of his life, he did not forget cultural encounters, which he described either in terms of hybridization or in his favorite phrase, the interpenetration of cultures. In one of the most famous passages of his best-known book, he told his readers, I quote, every Brazilian, even the light-skinned blonde one, carries about him on his soul the shadow of the Indian or the African. In his mischievous way, Freire enjoyed telling his white readers that their culture was not purely European and that African and indigenous women had taught Portuguese colonists to take regular baths. <laughs> Freire made mixture the sign of Brazilian identity rather than, as it had been, a sign of inferiority, thus encouraging national pride and appealing to Brazilian presidents from Vargas to Lula. But his ideas also appealed um, a lot to Salazar in Portugal, leading Freire eventually to formulate the controversial idea of Luso-Tropicalism. This idea, discussed by Freire from the early 1950s on, is the development, maybe one might even say the caricature, of his original suggestion in Casa Grande that the Portuguese were the most successful and the least violent of European colonists because of their unique plasticity, plasticidade. In other words, uh, adaptability to the local environment. You can imagine that this idea appealed to the Salazar regime at a time of anti-colonial unrest. As a result, Freire was officially invited to make a tour of what the Portuguese called Ultramar, in other words, their empire, and his ideas were certainly used to defend the colonial regime to some degree, to some controversial degree, with his connivance. As a theory, I should say, at least in my view, the Luso part of Luso-tropicalism is the weak part. It seriously underestimates the violence of Portuguese colonizers and also underestimates discrimination in the Portuguese empire against people with darker skins. But the stronger part, to which I'm going to return in a moment, is the tropicalism, and especially his concern with the process of tropicalization, which is a way of talking about certain kinds of mixtures. Because Freire saw mixture almost everywhere. If you look at the titles of his many books, you might think he was obsessed with binary oppositions. The big house versus the slave quarters, the mansions versus the shanties, adventure versus routine, and so on. But if you actually read the books, you find he's always undermining these oppositions, always looking for what's in the middle, looking for encounters, looking for mixtures. One of his favorite words was semi. He called his novels, because among so many other things he wrote novels, but he called them semi-novels. 
and he also saw himself as a semi-sociologist, going as far as to publish a book with typical um, egocentrism, at least in his later life. Uh, he called the book Why I Am and Am Not a Sociologist. <laughs> Again, when he studied cities, what fascinated Freire was what he called urbanization, the mix of urban and rural values, which had been noted earlier by North American sociologists, but he took this and applied it, adapted it to Brazil. When he studied time, he was very interested in the sociology or social history of time. Straight away, Freire emphasized what he called the interpenetration of the past, the present, and the future. When he wrote on football, which he occasionally did, he explained that the Brazilian style of playing, that is, dancing with the ball, that's originally his phrase, was the result of mixture. In this case, between a European tradition of football and an Afro-Brazilian tradition of capoeira. And when he studied 19th century Brazil, Freire's central theme was the mixture of the local with the foreign. Intervening in a long national debate over the question about whether Brazilian high culture was a mere copy or imitation of French or um, Anglophone models, Freire's answer was a triple one. He argued, in the first place, there were African and Asian models competing with European ones. In the second place, he pointed out Brazilian culture had influenced some Europeans as well as the other way around. But the, in the third place, and this is the argument he kept emphasizing, Brazilians didn't imitate so much as adapt, translate foreign models, producing, once again, a mixture. And the fullest demonstration of that last point comes from one of his lesser-known books, unjustly not very well known here, The English in Brazil, published in 1948, but one had to wait till very few years ago for uh, an English translation. <clears throat> this book focuses on the transformation of everyday life, usually the life of the upper and middle classes in a few Brazilian cities, notably Recife, which is Freire's native city, but, and also in Rio de Janeiro. <clears throat> this transformation followed the arrival of English, or better, British merchants and British products. Food, clothes, pianos, teapots, water closets, and so on, in the early 19th century. He's very interested in material culture, again and again. Um, and this transformation is described by Freire as a revolution, but not an ordinary revolution, a gentle revolution. Uh, I think a good way of translating his term today would be velvet revolution. Anyway, his, he called it a white revolution, a soft revolution. And he presents this revolution as a consequence of a cultural encounter between unequals, describing it in the strong language of imperialism, domination, invasion, conquest, penetration. But this strong thesis about British cultural imperialism 
is qualified by Freire's emphasis on Brazilian creativity, the adaptation, domestication of foreign items to fit their new environment. And he takes a vivid example from material culture, which is Chippendale chairs. They became fashionable in early 19th century Brazil. But this um, acceptance is accompanied by a kind of cultural translation. A quote, their straight English lines becoming more rounded in the tropical environment. So in short, tropicalization. In his usual manner, which is to pick up somebody's concept and take it further, running with the ball, he adapted the idea of tropicalization to the social sciences. And that brings me to one of his greatest achievements as a global thinker. <clears throat> In the last few years, we've seen, heard, many critiques of social and cultural theory as Eurocentric, more exactly, centred on the West, since the best-known social theorists have generalised about the whole world, on the, usually on the basis of information and ideas produced in a small number of cities in the United States, France, Germany, and Britain. Think of Marx, Weber, Durkheim, Parsons, Ilias, and so on, and Bourdieu, uh, all active in one of four or five Western cities. But in reaction against this intellectual dominance, we've seen a kind of revenge of the periphery. <laughs> Notably, first the rise of post-colonial studies and more recently and more specifically, the idea of Southern theory, as described by the Australian Ray Wynne Connell and the South African anthropologists Jean and John Kamaroff, criticising what they call Euro-American social theory as, and, and especially the target of the... Um, Kamarov couple of anthropologists, Euro-modernity, the idea that there's only one modernity in Europe got there first. So what I want to suggest now is that this movement for Southern theory has a longer history than many of its participants appear to realise. Gilberto Freire, whose international role has just been described by Maria Lucia, was also an ancestor a generally unacknowledged ancestor of the international project of Southern theory. He was thinking and he was writing decades before Said, Spivak, Glissant, Gilroy, Baba. And as we both emphasised, Freire became famous for these ideas about social and cultural hybridity that underpinned his social and cultural history of Brazil. I just want to add now that he employed hybrid methods to study a hybrid subject. He borrowed from sociology, anthropology, psychology and other disciplines. And he attempted to hybridise the social sciences by introducing elements from South America and sometimes elsewhere. <coughs> in the highly unorthodox introduction to sociology that he published in 1945, Freire called for a Brazilian style of sociology, exactly the, uh, the point that he repudiated three years later as his views became wider. 
but his most important general statement on the subject, expanding the idea to include the tropics in general, came in the article that Rielusi just cited, 1948, Internationalizing Social Science. And in this article, Freire quite explicitly criticized the social theory of his day because all the generalizations were based on social experiences of humans in the temperate zone. It was therefore necessary, he wrote, to tropicalize social theory to contribute to what he called a pan-human civilization. Of course, he wasn't the only ancestor of Southern theory. The group surely includes José Carlos Mariategui in Peru, Fernando Ortiz in Cuba, and the polymath Radha Kamal Mukherjee in India. Actually, Prairie often referred to Mukherjee's books. But he was closer, really, to and there were strong parallels between his work and the work of Fernando Ortiz. Both scholars criticised the idea of race, both studied the world of the sugar plantations, both were fascinated by cultural hybridity. Where Freire wrote of the interpenetration of cultures, Ortiz wrote of transculturación, and he also um, compared uh, Cuba to a stew because it mixed so many different elements. <coughs> Incidentally, the term transculturación is a fascinating instance of the very process to which it refers, since it was coined on the periphery in Cuba, taken up by Malinowski and others in the United States, Britain and elsewhere. But in short, to conclude, from the tropicalization of Chippendale chairs it was only a short step, at least for Freire, to the tropicalization of European sociology. In an interview of 1971, going back to his ideas of 1948, he stressed the need for Brazilian intellectuals to develop their own concepts and methods in the social sciences, to fit their own ecology and avoid what he called European-isms, citing Marxism Freudianism, Weberism. <laughs> he viewed tropical societies as new models for the future of humanity to be studied in a new discipline, tropicology. In short, he was already participating in the collective enterprise described by Deepesh Chakrabarti as provincializing Europe. It's on these grounds, especially his dream of the pan-human <coughs> social science that I recommend him to your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.